Winnipeg Air Control suggested several alternate landing sites, including the inactive former Royal Air, the inactive former Royal Canadian Air Force. Fuck. The inactive <laughs> former Royal Air Force Canadian. Fuck. You can do it. The I can do this. The Royal Canadian Air Force. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton. I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I am Jessica. And I'm Janelle, after half a bottle of rosé. So anything can happen. Ah, yes. <laughs> oh, this is gonna be an exciting evening. Janelle's on downers, I'm on enough uppers to uh, resurrect a dead horse. Eh, we're gonna have a fun time. <laughs> Today is chaotic neutral podcast. We, uh, <laughs> we cancel each other out. I had half a bottle of graduation celebration rosé in my fridge, and that shit turns to vinegar after about a week, so... Yeah, and I've been doing lines of Ritalin all morning, so we're gonna have a fun time. Must you take your ADHD medication in lines? <laughs> it's faster that way. Does it not upset the pharmacist when you pick it up and you ask for the razor blades and small mirrors? <laughs> At this point, they just hand it over. <laughs> They're just like, aisle three. Get out of my office. <laughs> uh, so today we're discussing three spectacular commercial airplane accidents. Woohoo! Yes, but before we begin, begin, I want to promise you all one thing. Nobody dies. Oh. All of these stories, weirdly enough for us, are zero fatality incidents. I like that one. We just kind of crash land right into this topic. There's no lead-in. We're just like, all right, Absolutely non-fatal not. plane accidents. Let's do this. But also, too... <laughs> How unusual it is for us to have an episode that doesn't have any death, dismemberment, or cannibalism. The fact that not even a pint of human blood is spilt is uh, a rarity. Normally you've got to disappear mysteriously into the woods to have a bloodless, fat, French, and fabulous episode, but apparently, yeah, we're we're showing real versatility and growth. We have range, darling. (laughs) (laughs) Better living through mass transit accidents. All right. Airplane? are statistically one of the safest forms of transportation in the modern world. Uh, per trip, per distance, per hour, no matter the metric, you are less likely to die on a plane than almost any other form of transportation. According to statistics from the United States from 2000 to 2009, for every billion miles traveled by a passenger, planes were over 30% safer than buses, three times safer than subways, six times safer than trains, and 104 times safer than automobiles. I believe it. I take planes in and out of post-9-11 New York City all the time. They won't even let you bring something onto the plane that would let you accidentally hurt yourself. Never mind someone else. I'm amazed you're still allowed to bring bottle caps without holes in the top. In case you choke. <laughs> like, I don't... I've, I've looked at my shit before boarding a, a plane at LaGuardia Airport and been like, am I even allowed to bring pencils anymore? Like, is my lipstick too sharp? I could poke myself. <laughs> You know, it, should I wing my eyeliners? If they, I might cut somebody. <laughs> and, like, they just let you bring anything onto the subway. People oh, take yeah. the subway in New York City like it's no big deal. People There's... put entire dogs in bags. 
I was on the subway in the Bronx the other day. I work in the South Bronx now. I've mentioned this in the last episode, but I've it has increased the number of weird things I see on public transit by 4000%. So I was I was just on the subway as one does, and all of a sudden like the doors open as they do, and this man goes Hah! and just hurls a card table into the subway car and then just leaves. Like <laughs> His grudge was with the card table. He had nothing against any of us. So he had to bring an entire card table into the subway. Yeah. Just to hurl it onto a train and leave. For those of you who are not New York City residents who may not know this, the subways are kind of a misnomer. In the outer boroughs, uh, the subways are above ground. They're they're quite far above ground. So they're more surways. No, this this man dragged a card table up four flights of stairs. (laughs) violently hurled it onto the four train and then just left like he had other shit to do today. <laughs> this was just one errand on his This was a tick off his to-do list. <laughs> now he's got are... now he's got to go tip over a washing machine <laughs> or something. Right? Like what a relief this is. Now it's time to take a shit on a public sidewalk and go to the <laughs> bank. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I love New York. <laughs> fully believe you because like i spent less than two weeks in new york city and i saw things <laughs> you can't make up the things that I happened. discovered a whole new world i watched a woman feed strawberries to an uncaged parrot and that was one of the more normal things i saw it was a cockatiel i remember that yeah. that was on the that was on the six heading up from union square <laughs> Shit happen, but you couldn't even make up the shit that happens on public transit. It's, it's remarkable. Like you'd you'd make up something interesting. You'd be like, oh yeah, and today on the subway I saw a celebrity fight another celebrity. But in reality, it's just disappointing and strange. You're like, yeah, I just I saw a man like just masturbate unfulfillingly into a box of Lucky Charms, and then nobody said anything. Like that's yeah, <laughs> nobody even looked. <laughs> yeah, we do, we just went about our day. We're all just dead inside, and we crave yeah, death. Yeah. Stare forward. Don't think of the marshmallows. Apparently, we shouldn't take the plane if we crave death. We should just stay right where we are. Literally, we had a problem where we had to take a different train one day because someone had died. Mm. Oh yes, had we just did. Died on the train. That does happen. It took a while for some people to notice, but then they had to shut it down. <laughs> Can you imagine how traumatized you would be if the train just breaks suddenly and the man next to you just flopped over because he's a corpse? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be the <sighs> most upsetting thing that had ever happened to me on a train, but it's up there. It's up there. The reason for this safety record is that compared to other forms of transportation, the international community takes aviation incidents incredibly seriously. We put a lot of resources into understanding why these accidents happen and preventing them from ever happening again, precisely due to their spectacular nature. Governments and the commercial aviation community largely prevent death through stringent technical and training standards, making sure nothing ever happens in the first place. Because, let's face it, the most likely scenario if a plane actually goes down is that everybody's gonna die. Yeah, I was just gonna say, in New York City, they could ramp an entire six train into the Hudson River, killing everyone on board, and we would still vote Governor Cuomo into office again. (laughs) None of us care. Because it, it, it feels more quotidian. It's We're like, that's fine. You know what? That's they deserve This it. might as well happen. <laughs> sure. We wouldn't even stop taking the six train. <laughs> We'd just get on the next one. But when yeah. airplane accidents happen, we give a shit. Yeah, you'd you'd be more annoyed by the delay than the fact that four hundred people are drowning. 
I 100% would. There have, however, been several exceptions. The most famous of which is probably U.S. Airways Flight 1549, The Miracle on the Hudson, which has a Clint Eastwood-directed movie about it starring Two-Face and Woody from Toy Story. Oh, that's, we're starting with a New York story. Yes, we're starting with New York. We're Yay. your home, then mine. Uh, U.S. <laughs> Airways Flight 1549 was scheduled on the afternoon of January 15th. 2009, to leave New York City from LaGuardia Airport, traveling first south to Charlotte Douglas International in North Carolina, followed by direct onward service to Seattle Tacoma International on the West Coast. The plane took off from runway 4 at 3.26 p.m. without incident under the control of First Officer Jeffrey Skiles. Wind was mild, visibility good, to the point that pilot-in-command Chelsea Burnett Sully Sullenberger III noted to Skiles, What a view of the Hudson today. God, what a name. What a name. They did that man a disservice by nicknaming him Sully in all of the, uh, the publicity after the event. My goodness, how could you not give him the f- his full title of Chelsea Burnett Sullenberger III? <laughs> His first name is Chelsea. His first name is Chelsea. That's fascinating. I, how did how is that something that didn't get a lot of news play? We're all just like, eh, we'll go with Sully. It's, he's got it's a, quicker. He's got the one-two punch of Chelsea Burnett, followed by a full-on hell hellraiser of a haymaker, Sullenberg the <laughs> Third. Like, I, I I'm under the impression the reason why they didn't read his name out loud on the news is because it would have caused like miscarriages. <laughs> oh, it's Chesley. It's Chesley Burnett. Is it Chesley? Oh, it's Chesley. It's I, I Chesley. misread it because it's actually weirder than that. It's Chesley yeah. Burnett. It's a it's Sully, a made up name. The third. Yeah, it's not better. I said that as if it was better, but it's not. It's not. It's actually no. worse. I'm pretty sure hearing the words Chesley Burnett Sully Sullenberger III when you're not prepared, that that's going to give you a nosebleed at the very least. I was going to say, I just grew chest hair and slapped a poor person. <laughs> it's like they wanted to name him Chadwick, but it wasn't douchey enough. 34 seconds after noting the view over the Hudson, at 327, the plane collided with a flock of Canadian geese. The birds obstructed the cockpit windows, but more directly, the Airbus 320's twin engines cut out with flames and a loud bang, taking out both, leaving the air eerie quiet and smelling of fuel. I was gonna say, I didn't actually know what caused the accident, so I was was gonna start with, are we certain that the passengers didn't stomp the plane down to avoid going to North Carolina? (laughs) Like they were like, maybe if we jump up and down and sink, we can knock this plane out of the goddamn sky. It's not too late. I mean, they're going from they're going from New York to North Carolina to Tacoma. It's only getting worse from here. That's a nosedive. But no, apparently the Canadian geese were like, none shall leave. Not this day. <laughs> this is what is known in aviation as a bird strike. When an airborne vehicle collides with flying wildlife, one of the most common hazards in the air. Obviously, these kinds of collision are usually more dangerous to the animals than the planes, but on rare occasions these strikes can obscure visibility, confuse flight instruments, or damage vital components of the aircraft. Particularly dangerous is what is known as engine ingestion, where the animal flies into the turbine. Mmm, hungry, hungry turbine. Even a jet engine has trouble chewing through an entire bird. 
Especially if the body displaces the, a blade of the fan, sending it ricocheting into the other blades, a domino effect resulting in catastrophic failure. The larger and more robust the animal, the greater the risk, with the three most dangerous birds being the turkey vulture, the white pelican, and the Canada goose. God damn it, Canadian geese. <laughs> An attack on the security of the United States, coming from our friendly neighbor to the north. <laughs> Nothing friendly about a goddamn Canada goose. They will no. rip your fucking eyes out. No, they are evil. I have seen several children approach a Canada goose with dawning horror, with the knowledge that I might be about to see a full-on bird on toddler infanticide. <laughs> yeah, the closest thing that like a Canadian goose gets to feeling joy is just the feeling of grim satisfaction when they're covered in their opponent's blood. They like to watch the light leave your eyes the way people watch the sunset. This is why windshield and jet engine designs are comprehensively tested for resistance to bird strikes, both using computer models and practical tests, including what is oh. known as the chicken gun, a device that fires whole, raw chickens. This is exactly what I wanted, yes. <laughs> I was like, please tell me there's just some poor sad sack named Steve who just hurls birds into a jet engine to see if it explodes. Absolutely. Oh, but it's even better. He fires them out of a cannon. Yeah. Oh. It's similar I've... to a potato gun, where, like, it's it's pressurized yes. air. And, like, put on your goggles, because there's going to be some fucking sh chicken shrapnel coming your way. I've never felt so goddamn alive. <laughs> no, I was reading the Wikipedia article on bird strikes, and I saw the words chicken gun, and I it took me on an adventure. I was about to give up on this life, but holy shit, the knowledge that there's a person who earns their living firing chicken carcasses into a jet turbine. <laughs> oh, it gives me hope. This planet oh, is worth saving alive. after all. Why didn't the high school counselor tell me that? <laughs> well, you're terrible at everything and you're an antisocial weirdo. Pick up your bag of chicken carcasses and grab a cannon. <laughs> Dangerous interactions between wildlife and aircraft are most common during landing and takeoff, because wildlife are densest at low altitude. Unfortunately, this is likewise when the engines are most vulnerable, working harder and rotating faster than they would be during regular flight. And this is precisely what happened in the case of U.S. Flight 1549. Dual engine ingestion of Canada geese leading to complete loss of thrust. Oh, can you imagine, though, seeing a Canada goose at 30,000 feet? Just like, honk, honk, motherfucker, like... <laughs> and the second engine explodes. <laughs> <laughs> what you gonna do? Kamikaze attack? It's, it's a, it's a little-known fact that the only two sounds that a Canada goose can make are honk, honk, and a noise that resembles the phrase, Where is your god now, mortals? Yeah, it's specifically pronounced... <laughs> <laughs> they hiss. They hiss like demonic cats. <laughs> they do. Provoke them. It's fun. No, don't. No, don't. You're gonna die. <laughs> You're gonna end up concussed with one eye. Oh, God, but what a way to go. Sullenberger took control of the plane while Skiles went through the engine re restart checklist. The plane climbed for another 19 seconds, reaching the, a height of around 3,060 feet, or 930 meters, at a speed of only 213 miles per hour, or 343 kilometers per hour, before losing altitude and beginning a glide descent. 22 seconds after the initial hit, 
Sullenberger radioed into New York Terminal Radar Approach Control. This is Cactus 1539. Hit birds. We've lost thrust on both engines. We're turning back towards LaGuardia. Now, the actual call sign for the flight was Cactus 1549, not 39, but you can understand why Mr. Sullenberger III might have been a tad distracted, given the circumstances. Yeah, they just made fucking bird salsa out of their engines. <laughs> things things are getting saucy. Also, uh, and I happen to know this because LaGuardia is the only airport I'm willing to fly out of because it's a 15-minute Uber and I'm incredibly lazy, but LaGuardia is an incredibly difficult airport to land at. When they built New York City, they needed space for skyscrapers, and they didn't leave a lot of space for runways. So when you land at LaGuardia, you actually have to do a spiral descent. Like, they don't just come down onto a runway, coast for a bit, and land. You spiral down into the airport and you land just off the water. It's a very short runway, and you do mm-hmm. most of your descent over water, and then you hit this tiny little runway, and they just kind of break and hope for the best. <laughs> Air Control instructed LaGuardia to hold all departures and directed Sullenberger to runway 13, to which Sullen- Sullenberger re- responded, unable. He Ooh. then asked Air Control for uh, somewhere to land in New Jersey. Permission was granted for runway 1 at the T- Teterboro Relief Airport. But Sullenberger again declined, saying, we can't do it. We're going to be in the Hudson. Basically, when they told him to hit runway 13, the response should basically just be like, just be glad I'm not coming down in the f- middle of a goddamn Greek restaurant in Astoria. Like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a fu- fuck no good buddy. <laughs> We're going to come down in the middle of Pyrgos Leftos Greek Cafe. Like, <laughs> if you're lucky, we'll miss the hummus. <laughs> <laughs> the tzatziki might not be safe <laughs> this is a city where we live approximately four pe- four people to every square foot like just be mm-hmm. glad we're not gonna squish any major urban centers here yeah the problem was that the plane simply didn't have the speed or the altitude sullenberger needed to maneuver the plane actually passed over the Washington Bridge, the busiest bridge connecting New York to New Jersey, less than 900 feet overhead. That's terrifying. Likewise, he had never been to the Teterboro Airport before. Oh. And as Janelle and I are hinting at, and I don't know how familiar you all are with the greater New York metropolitan area, Very. but it is incredibly <laughs> densely populated. There's no good place to land a jet airliner here. You will kill- no. Hundreds of people. LaGuardia itself is well within city limits. It's in Queens. Given the risks, with the plane rapidly losing time and altitude, Sullenberger decided to ditch the plane in the Hudson River, while air control notified the Coast Guard, requesting that they caution vessels in the river and ask them to prepare to assist in rescue. Uh, yeah, the only, like, spot near the Hudson River that has any kind of green space is the front lawn of Columbia University, and you can't land a jet airliner on that. Absolutely not. For one, like... President Lee Bollinger will be goddamn furious, but for two, yeah, every <laughs> everyone's gonna die, and you're also gonna kill a whole bunch of rich 19-year-olds with powerful dads. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. Not only are you gonna be dead, you're gonna be sued into oblivion. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, like, when they built New York City, they really didn't count on the invention of magical flying sky tubes. 
The airports are very much an afterthought. At 3.31 p.m., the plane descended southbound at a speed of only 140 miles per hour, or 230 kilometers per hour. Or the speed my mom does in a minivan on the highway. (laughs) Landing hard, roughly parallel to West 50th Street on Manhattan Island. Oh, shit. At Sullenberger's order, the crew evacuated passengers through the four overwing window exits and onto an inflatable raft. The landing tore a hole in the fuselage, and the plane took on water. Exacerbating the situation, the cargo doors had come open. Due to the rap- rapidity of the situation, the crew never pulled the plane's ditch switch, which would have sealed any vents in the fuselage. The third flight attendant, Doreen Welsh, decided not to open the rear doors for risk of further flooding, though a panicked passenger managed to open one door a crack, which Welsh tried and failed to reseal. God, people are idiots. Just dealing with a panicky human being in water is a danger unto itself. It's like trying to fight a toddler who weighs 200 pounds. (laughs) And toddlers themselves are dangerous. You are trying to help somebody and control somebody while trying not to hurt them while they have no such compunctions about you. This is one of the reasons why, why, why you were advised if someone is flailing while drowning, not to get within grabbing distance. Oh, they'll just, they'll just murder you. They'll drown They you. will climb you like a tree. And I mean, I can understand that it's stressful to be in a plane crash six blocks from Times Square in post 9-11 New York City. But at the same time, like, if you're involved in an aviation accident, you should probably not start operating pieces of the airplane you don't understand. The flight crew know what they're doing. Just, Just let them, if they decide that the big door should not be open, don't open the big door. Follow directions. <laughs> you might be a wild spirit. You don't want to listen to the man. But in this case, the man is a woman telling you not to kill us all. <laughs> in, in the event of a disaster, you just kind of have to revert to a five-year-old. Do what you're told, raise your hand, and don't lose track of your goddamn buddy. <laughs> it's okay if you pee yourself. Just try to get home in one piece. Keep holding hands. That's all that matters. Many passengers waited on the wings for rescue, while others swam away from the plane for fear of an explosion. Two New York waterway ferries, the Thomas Jefferson and the Governor Thomas H. Keene, quickly arrived and began taking the stranded passengers aboard, using what is known as a Jason's Cradle a type of stiff cloth netting that can be used as either a climbable ladder or fashioned into a stretcher. Several other boats, helicopters, and pleasure craft likewise came to the aid of the downed plane. Interesting. They just There's just some rich people out on their yacht, and they're like, look at that, let's go boat over to these people. Oh, let's, ha- let's make a day of it, Johnson. Let's just go over there and save some downed pedestrians. <laughs> also, for the record... I would rather risk death by fiery plane explosion than ingest any amount of Hudson River water. If they're like, alright, you get to swim in cold water that's made up of 40% New Jersey missing persons, and then <laughs> end up in New Jersey, I'd be like, no thanks, let's blow this fucker up. I'm, I'm good. I, <laughs> I die with honor and without an ounce of Jimmy Hoffa in my lungs. <laughs> death. <laughs> I choose death. the last person was taken from the plane at 355 only 24 minutes after the hard water landing 
every soul aboard was saved, including a wheelchair-bound passenger. 155 people in total. Limiting the death count of the incident to several unfortunate geese. (laughs) Which deserve to die anyway. They're technically a pest species and they will eat your child. There were only five serious injuries, including a deep laceration suffered by Doreen Welsh. But 780 people were treated for minor injuries and hypothermia. Several passengers later suffered symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Key to the successful ditching of the plane was the expertise and level-headed decisions of the crew. Sullenberger was an aviation safety expert and former fighter pilot with decades of experience and over 19,000 flight hours logged over his career, including both powered and glider planes. First Officer Skiles had likewise over 15,000 flight hours to his name. A National Transportation Safety Board investigation later validated Sullenberger's decision to ditch the plane rather than attempting to return to the runway. Yeah, they gave him shit over that for years. They dragged him through every kind of disciplinary hearing. They wanted him to try bringing the plane down at LaGuardia, which, you know, could have had a death toll in the thousands. Because, again, LaGuardia is feet from densely populated neighborhoods. This is not, you know, we parked the airplane three hours out of town. (laughs) No, it it, it was found through a variety of computer models and tests that, like, no, if he had attempted it, everyone would have died. You're gonna take out half the world's Greek diaspora if you charge a fucking 747 through the neighborhood of Astoria. The world's supply of baklava will never be the same. (laughs) Now, you might think the fact that 155 people and about a third of Athens nearly died of impromptu goose pate absurd. But this was by no means the silliest aviation accident to grace the North American continent. For that, we have to go back to 1983 and oh, Air please, Canada yes. Flight 143. Is this the goddamn Otherwise Gimli Glider? As the Gimli Glider. Oh, I hoped we would do this one. <laughs> oh, death by rounding error. My absolute oh my favorite. So good. (laughs) I'm so excited. This is one of the proudest and most stupid points in Canadian fucking history. This is what makes me honored and privileged to be a Canadian and likewise ashamed to exist. We're so goddamn proud of an embarrassing aviation accident in which nobody died. We commemorated it with a stamp. (laughs) Ah, Gimli for all you nerds out there, is not a reference to the character from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but rather Gimli, Manitoba, a small Canadian town in the midst of the vast swath of rural fuck-all that separates Ontario and (laughs) Quebec to the east from Alberta and British Columbia to the west. My father did a six-week training course in Gimli, Manitoba in midwinter for CN Rail when he was 19 years old. And I was like, how was it, Dad? And he's like, I drank continuously from the moment I arrived. (laughs) He's he's like, I spent the last two weeks vomiting and I remember nothing. (laughs) He wasn't... You you can go to Gimli, but you won't return the same man. You just... It it barely hits the back of your retina before you want to drink to forget it. Gimli itself was founded by Icelandic immigrants, who named their town after the mythical Norse Gimli, a paradise where the survivors of the apocalyptic Ragnarok would live, according to the Prose Edda, uh, the most beautiful place in all of Asgard. More beautiful than the sun. 
I take from this that those Icelandic immigrants had a tad over-romanticized their new home in rural Manitoba, and that Gimli, son of Gloin, had a girl's name. On July 23rd, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 was scheduled to fly from Montreal to Edmonton with a stopover in Ottawa, a distance of about 3,000 kilometers, or 1,800 miles. The flight crew was highly experienced. At the helm, veteran aviators, pilot-in-command Bob Pearson and First Officer uh, Maurice Quintal, which are two very Canadian names. Exceptionally. Except, like, this is, like, I'm, I'm tempted to call this Bob and Maurice's excellent adventure. <laughs> I assume that they really, like, saved the best crew for the, like, Ottawa to Edmonton leg so that they could wrestle people back into their seats when they start screaming, like, not Edmonton, <laughs> anywhere but Edmonton, and then this burly flight crew just, like, wrestles you back in your seat, like, calm down, and they're, sir. And they're like, it's either Edmonton or we turn into Saskatoon, and they start just, they just, they just go catatonic and, like, slump in their seat. <laughs> Shut up and eat your borscht and green onion cakes. <laughs> the first leg from Montreal to Ottawa went smoothly. Perfectly routine. <sighs> the first sign of anything amiss came when the plane was flying over Red Lake, Ontario, en route to Edmonton at a cruising altitude of 12,000 meters, or 41,000 feet. The warning system sounded with a notification of a fuel pressure issue on the plane's left side. The most likely cause, a faulty fuel pump. So the pilots simply turned the alarm off. <laughs> Just, you know, like, like the... Ignoring the uh, check engine light in your car for six months, except you're 41,000 feet off the ground. Yeah, this may seem crazy, but at cruising altitude, gravity could do the work of drawing the fuel into the engine without a mechanical assistance. Under most circumstances, the pilots could have, could have checked the fuel gauge as well, but an electrical short due to a botched soldering job had rendered the gauge inoperable, which the pilots had known about before takeoff from Montreal and had taken steps to work around. Is this plane just repaired by a random man named Gordon with a roll of duct tape? Please. Like, this is Air Canada in the 1980s. It was absolutely maintained by a man named Gord with a roll of duct tape. Like, when they hired Celine Dion to be their spokesperson, I didn't realize she'd be doing all the plane repairs, too. <laughs> the maintenance crew had hand-measured the fuel, uh, using a device <laughs> principally similar to the dipstick of a car then manually entered the initial fuel into the fuel management system. Just to be safe, the flight crew had rerun the numbers three times, using the mathematical formula for aircraft weight to fuel requirement listed on the refueling slip, 1.77 pounds per liter. <laughs> After the first leg to Ottawa, Pearson had even insi insisted on having the fuel remeasured, just to be absolutely sure how much fuel they had burned. There's some things that become more valuable when you do them by hand, you know, hand-sewn, handmade cheese, handcrafted furniture. Hand-measured airplane fuel just makes me nervous. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, I grew up knowing the story of the Gimli glider from a young age because there's not much else that went on in Canada that wasn't depressing as fuck. Yeah, this was but, this was a bright light in a dreary day. It's like it's like getting a laptop and then learning that like all the calculations for the processor are done by hand. As aware as I am that the vast majority of horrific incidents are 100% human error, not comforting. No, if, if you can do math not by hand, do math not by hand. 
as much as your third grade teacher insisted, fucking use a calculator. (laughs) (laughs) You're made out of meat. Meat is not good at math. The maintenance recruit reported a total of one of 11,430 liters. The flight crew again checked the number against the formula listed on the refueling slip. 1.77 pounds per liter. She repeats ominously because it's an important part of the story. Buckle up, Americans. You're about to laugh at us. (laughs) Sadly for the flight crew, who had never been trained on how to perform these conversions, there was a fatal flaw in this formula. I want you all to remember that this is 1983, which just so happens to be the year the Canadian aviation industry was scheduled to switch to the metric system. And the Boeing 767 that Pearson and Quintal were flying was the the Air Canada fleet's very first metric plane. The formula (laughs) the Montreal maintenance crew should have used was 0.8 kilos per liter. As a kilo is (laughs) 2.2 times the size of an imperial pound, Flight 143 did not leave Ottawa with 20,400 kilos of fuel more than enough to reach Edmonton with a comfortable margin for safety. Rather, they had just 9,144 kilos of fuel, just enough to get halfway to Edmonton and crash in the middle of the vast Canadian wilderness, definitely to be rendered into a red flesh smoothie and possibly to be scavenged by wolves. That was vivid. (laughs) This is why I'm kind of glad Americans don't know this story, so that... When I'm laughing at them for the fact that they still measure distance with a dead king's foot, they can't turn around and be like, huh, how'd that work for Gimli, you goddamn <laughs> Canuck? They would lampoon us. If they knew, if they had any recollection, if they paid as much attention to us as they do to the existence of football, they would never let us forget to be the honest, Gimli though, glider. I think one, like, pretty magnificent aviation accident is worth it, because I would I would sacrifice many people's safety and well-being to not have to learn that there are 5,280 feet in a mile. That's just ridiculous. That's absurd. <laughs> you shouldn't have to memorize your number system. It's just TEDs. Just add more zeros. Just, just That's all you need. Like, if I, if I turn to you, Janelle, and I ask you how much a centigram is... It's a hundredth of a kilo. That's all there is to it. I've, I've never, I've never thought about centigram in my life. <laughs> Nothing is measured in centigrams, but I know exactly what it is. Sure, sure. I mean, you can measure things in centigrams like some sort of serial killer. Yeah. If you, you want can. to, you, I don't know why you, you shouldn't. Would. I don't know why you would, but you can, and everyone will know what you're talking about. The only thing measured in centigrams is human blood, like found in a carpet. Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's not a normal measurement, but everyone would basically know what you knew know what amount of blood you meant. Mmm, decameters. That's that's what I use to measure the skin I peel off women's faces. But at least, you know, people still know. They know what that yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> a few moments after shutting off the first alarm, a second alarm sounded for the right engine, again with notification of a fuel pressure issue. The pilots decided to divert to Winnipeg, because there's only so many alarms even an 80s Air Canada pilot can ignore. (laughs) I was gonna say, like, this just turns into a game of, like, bop it after a while. (laughs) Twist it. 
Pull it. <laughs> Turn it off. <laughs> Crash into North Battleford, Saskatchewan. <laughs> Seconds later, the left engine cut out completely. Mm. The pilots radioed into Winnipeg air control, indicating their intention to make a single engine landing and attempted to restart the left engine. Then a loud bong sounded, indicating that both engines had failed, starved of fuel. To quote Quintal, It's a sound that Bob and I had never heard before. It's not in the simulator. <laughs> There's no out-of-gas sound in the simulator? Yeah, the reason it wasn't in the simulator, of course, is that standard pilot training for the 767 never included what to do in case of a total loss of both engines. Really? That seems like an important thing to maybe, like, Bit of a consider. misstep. They're just like, well, you're Bit fucked. Bit of an oversight. Make peace with your god. Like, that's, <laughs> that's all they've got for you. Yeah, you flip to the middle of the emergency manual, and it just shows a picture of you praying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Hope you get raptured before you hit the ground. Like, <laughs> you're the closest to god. You'll go first. <laughs> Uh, the 767 had an auxiliary power unit designed to power the electrical components in the cockpit and provide pneumatic pressure to the plane's control system in case of emergency. But that APU also drew power from the same fuel tanks as the engines. It's like the whole thing's gas-powered and you're kind of fucked without it. Whoops. <laughs> it's like a small town in, in rural Manitoba. It's entirely generator-based. <laughs> Oof. The cockpit went dark, leaving only the radio and a few standby instruments. Missing was any vertical speed indicator, the instrument that measures rate of climb and rate of descent. Oh, that's important, because without it, you're basically a giant kite. <laughs> the pilots of Air Canada Flight 143 would just have to eyeball it in terms of their elevation and descent speed. Oh, that's what you want. Just just the eyeball in it method. You're like, yeah, yeah. this looks like, I don't know, 6,000 feet? Sure. Fuck it's it. It's not like I've ever tried to make a batch of pancakes and put in too much milk. <laughs> I was going to say, be I, fine. I can't even park a car. Never mind an airplane. <laughs> like, I can't tell if a pair of pants fits until I have them around my ass. And you expect me... To just know how many thousand feet I am above the Canadian tundra? Sure. <laughs> right? When I'm when I'm parallel parking, am I four feet behind the car in front of me or am I halfway into their trunk? I don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't know this shit. I just listen for the grinding sounds. <laughs> Without pneumatic pressure, a 767's hydraulic controls are essentially inoperable. But the design included a final failsafe in the case of a complete loss of pressure. A rat. What? The ram air turbine. Oh, I was like, do we just throw a rat out the window and guesstimate how long <laughs> squeak, that squeak. fucker takes to hit the ground? And like, fetch <laughs> the rat. <laughs> like a disturbing Cana rural Canadian ratatouille. <laughs> Hops up on their heads and starts pulling their hair to control the plane. <laughs> the ram air turbine is a propeller-driven hydraulic pump tucked into the underside of the plane to reduce to reduce drag, which dropped automatically at the loss of the engines, using the airstream to generate power and supply hydraulic pressure to the controls. 
A notable downside to this emergency failsafe is that it means that the power it generates is entirely dependent on the speed of the plane. Should the plane slow for any reason, oh, say, trying to land, pressure to the controls would decline in turn. So this is one step above, like, just kicking your feet through the floor and trying to Fred Flintstone the plane to a stop. This is like, maybe not all of us will end up as a coppery stain on the prairies. Maybe only most of us will end up as a coppery stain on the prairies. Yeah, like, this is the last possible failsafe some random engineer in Boeing just decided for the hell of it. No one ever expected this to happen. (laughs) You're not even really trying to save lives when you're engaging this. You're trying to make the remains more identifiable. Yeah, like, you're just trying to make sure that you can tell each passenger from the next. (laughs) Like, you're just trying to make sure that you just don't have some kind of weird passenger soup. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go home in my own box. I don't want to be in a cauldron with the rest of you fucks. (laughs) I don't want to be mixed in with the guy next to me. I want my my family to be able to bury something that's mostly me. Pearson, an experienced glider pilot, controlled the plane while Quintal searched the emergency section of the manual for the procedure for a dual engine failure, only to find that the manual contained no instructions for such an eventuality. God, can you imagine? You're like, all right, we've got this. We can figure this out. Fetch the manual. And then you open the page. There's just a picture of the middle finger. Yeah, there's oh, just God there's it. just there's just a stick figure with a shrug. <laughs> and you're just going through like this is a big manual. Like you're going through every possible yeah. contingency plan. You're like, "All right, you're getting hijacked by Saskatchewan separatists, uh flying grizzly bears, the Americans try to shoot you down. Like you've got pretty much every yeah. fucking contingency a plan." Beaver hit the engine. <laughs> <laughs> you spilled your poutine on the dashboard and the controls aren't responding. Then they get to like both engines fail on a dual engine aircraft and they're like, "No, we got nothing." Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no one at Boeing had ever considered the possibility that someone might try to glide their state-of-the-art 132-ton jumbo jet. (laughs) Almost like they're insulted. They're like, this is a work of art. (laughs) How dare you even presume that one should even need to glide our monstrous whale of the sky. (laughs) It's like using the Mona Lisa as a placemat. How dare you, sir? Winnipeg Air Control suggested several alternate landing sites, including the inactive former Royal Canadian Air Force Base at Gimli, but none possessed the necessary equipment to allow for the crash landing of a 767. What equipment do you need? Like, an ambulance? What What exactly is the equipment <laughs> a required? Spatula? <laughs> <laughs> a spatula? A really big fire extinguisher. What exactly... Is there uh, a big trampoline that you can just bring her down on? Yeah, quite a bit more runway than most rural Manitoban air- airports, it would seem. <laughs> the skid stop method. <laughs> Yeah, just just put a giant block down like a like a like a doorstop. Friction is a harsh and inefficient break. (laughs) As the flight crew had no way of knowing how far the plane could glide unpowered or even its current elevation, and the radio transponder of the plane had gone dark, leaving Winnipeg controllers to attempt to determine the jet's position and rate of descent using the radar screen and a cardboard ruler. It's this is the most Canadian thing ever. I didn't realize that Red Green was based on a goddamn true story. 
there's a Canadian television show for our American, New Zealand, and British audience um, that uh, it was called Red Green. I imagine it's still on. It was just basically about a man repairing things with duct tape that ought not to be repaired with duct tape, and that was the whole show. It oh, was yeah. on forever, and every Canadian alive watched it. Yep. It was. It was just a man named Steve in a garage in a pair of hip waders and suspenders fixing shit yeah. and going fishing. That's all that it was. It won 23 it Gemini Awards uh, and is one of the most successful Canadian television shows in history. Quintal, who apparently was just calmly doing some math over in the co-pilot seat, calculated the plane's glide ratio, which showed they'd lost 5,000 feet in altitude over the last 10 nautical miles. One thing was certain. Flight 143 was not making it to Winnipeg. <laughs> I just, like, they couldn't do the multiplication correctly to get the right amount of fuel onto the plane. So now they have to do trigonometry in the passenger seat as they're crashing. <laughs> yeah. This is the first time in history not going to Winnipeg has been a bad thing. <laughs> it's a terrible place. I live there, too. Yeah. It is the armpit of the earth. Like, Not just Canada. The Earth. <laughs> Stephen Colbert once compared Winnipeg to the taint of the globe. An actual survey of people from Winnipeg found uh, on whether or not this was a positive or negative... <laughs> a negative association for Winnipeg found that it was positive. They're just happy to be recognized. We're just glad you noticed. <laughs> We're just happy to be here. <laughs> Instead, Quintal and Pearson turned north, towards Gimli, 12 miles away, their last and only hope. By lucky chance, Quintal was familiar with the Gimli airfield, like Janelle's father, having trained there during his time with the Air Force. They train- this is- that's all the Gimli is. They can't convince anyone to live there long term, so they just fly you in for six weeks. <laughs> as some sort of cruel joke. <laughs> it's basically hazing. Well, it's like when your mom points out the oldest employee at Walmart and is like, if you don't get an education, that's going to be you someday. With like, they fly you in and they're like, if you don't finish this training course, you have to live here. Less fortunately, that training had been some time ago. And unknown to either of the pilots or the controllers in Winnipeg, while one of the airport field's twin runways, 32R, was now run as a civilian airport, the left runway, 32L, had since been decommissioned and converted into the Gimli Motorsports Park, featuring a racetrack, two-lane drag strip, and go-karts. Least fortunate of all, July 23rd, 1983, was the Winnipeg Sports Car Club's official family day. Oh, the Motorsports Park was therefore <laughs> crowded with cars, campers, motor enthusiasts, and children. So many... Many children. <laughs> I was just going to say, oh god. So now they have to maneuver a controlless airplane. They have no idea how far they are off the ground. They've never done this kind of landing before. They've got no instructions and no one can help them. Flying into an airfield they're not familiar with. And there's just children everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being in a car with no brakes and you've never driven before, and you're going 140 on the highway, and then a bus full of orphans just pulls out in front of you. Oh, I was going to make the exact same joke, damn God, you. we're sick But I was people. going with nuns. <laughs> <laughs> I like the calculus that goes into calculating the value of a life of a nun versus a child. 
What's the nun-child value ratio? Is it like one and a half children to a nun? I believe it's 1.77. Or maybe it's 0.8. We're sick people and we have no other friends. (laughs) We have to do this podcast. We only have each other. This is our only social interaction. (laughs) We're just off a feral at this point. (laughs) This is the only thing keeping us from eating out of the garbage. <laughs> it's either this or living under an underpass. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to live under that George Washington bridge we mentioned earlier in the podcast. That's going to be my home if I don't have this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is the only thing maintaining my sanity, so you better stand back. I'm going to bite you <laughs> like a Canadian goose. Oh... On their approach to Gimli, the pilots came to a nasty realization. The rat did not supply pressure to the hydraulics of the the 767's landing gear. Pearson instead ordered a gravity drop. Quintal tossed aside his quick reference handbook and hit the gear door release. The main landing gear fell and locked into place, but the nose gear failed to lock. Seriously, one, what is this plane? It's... (laughs) It was put together by a blind child. <laughs> I've put together IKEA furniture that would survive free fall from 41,000 feet better than this one. This is one model airplane that wasn't so much put together with model glue as, like, sparrow spit. <laughs> They're just like, well, nothing works. This is basically a sky can. That's <laughs> all it is. It's a it's a sardine can with wings. Oh, well... You know, boy, we're in the very hu- the very pinnacle of modern technology. This can't possibly go wrong. Oh well, the front just fell off. <laughs> <laughs> it's got fewer technological features than a tricycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was near dusk, and relying entirely on what his eyes could tell him when he wasn't concentrating on the airspeed gauge, Pearson only saw the bigger of the two runways. 32L. Was that, is this the one full of children or no? Oh, this is the one chock full of kids. Oh, good. As they grew close, Pearson realized that they were too high and too fast. The dive brakes a jet pilot would normally use are hydraulic flaps located in the wing, which raised to create drag. And without them, Pearson instead put the plane into a slip, crossing the controls and banking into the wind. This is a maneuver that creates massive amounts of drag while maintaining the direction of the plane. It is also a maneuver that left passengers on the right side of the plane staring up at clear blue sky, and the passengers on the left side of the plane staring down at a golf course full of what I imagine were some very surprised golfers. (laughs) One passenger apparently said, quote, Christ, I can almost see what clubs they are using. <laughs> I imagine this is just one, the part of the journey where everybody throws up. <laughs> so this just became real unpleasant. But two, this is like the aviation equivalent of sticking your hand out the window to create air drag. Oh yeah. Like That's all these, you're doing. These passengers, these poor fucking people are basically in a tumble dryer full of sick. <laughs> and it's like, you know, okay, we've tried hydraulics, that's failed. The engines have both failed. Um, all of our landing gear has failed. The doors aren't opening. Everything's failing. We have no instruments. We've got really no idea how fast we're going or how high we are off the ground. And they're like, all right, let's just do some gymnastics. That'll be fine. They're going full Tokyo drift on this bitch. And that film's not going to be around for another two decades at least. (laughs) 
They're like, let's just come in at a jaunty angle. That'll that'll make it better. Well, that'll that'll fix it. What's better than landing blind with no controls? Landing blind with no controls and also sideways. <laughs> The slip managed to slow the plane to 180 knots, still 30 to 50 knots faster than a normal landing. As they slowed, they lost hydraulic pressure, but at the last second, Pearson managed to pull out of the slip, leveling out the plane in preparation for a rough landing. By the time Quintal noticed the steel guardrail running down the middle of what was once the left runway and what was now a drag strip, it was too late to turn back. Can you they imagine how committed. mad you would be? Just, oh, god damn it. Oh, for fuck's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> you ingrateful fucks. I get you this far and you park a goddamn golf course. And a drag strip under my airplane. This is a good time for a breathy tabernacle. <laughs> <laughs> god wanted everyone on this plane to die. This man looked up into the god of death and he said, not today. Also, fuck the imperial system. <laughs> Pedestrians on the ground fled the runway as Pearson set down the 767, slamming on the brakes the moment the landing gear touched tarmac. The tires of the main gear burst, and the nose gear buckled and collapsed, slamming the nose of the plane into the tarmac where it bounced once, then ground across the asphalt, throwing up a 300-foot arc of sparks. The plane came to a halt less than a hundred feet from the gathered spectators and their barbecues, only 3,000 feet from where per Pearson had set down. I mean, and when, when we give it a cute little nickname like the Gimli Glider, it makes it sound like it was a little tiny plane that we kind of brought down like a hang glider. A 767 is a jet airliner. It is a yeah. large plane. These fuckers hold up to 375 people. Like, this is... Only slightly smaller than your average whale. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're absolutely enormous. This is a full size passenger jet. There's not Yeah. Is this not a cute little biplane that we're gonna bring down with no propeller? Like oh no, that's kinda this cute. Is no. Standard size large air commercial airliner. <laughs> there aren't really words for how powerfully you'd shit yourself if you heard the landing gear explode <laughs> on impact. <laughs> from a hundred feet away. That's like, robust. If you have any shit left that, that isn't a streak from from the front of your underwear to the back, <laughs> I'm impressed. You'd blow the ass right out of your pants. You're gonna rip right through the stitches. <laughs> this is less a boxers and briefs and more of a depends kind of situation. That's, that is graphic. <laughs> There's going to be some pretty heavy skid marks, and not all of them are on the tarmac. <laughs> That's a disgusting joke, but I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm proud of me, too. <laughs> a small fire started in the nose, causing oily black smoke to fill the cockpit, so the crew began evacuating the aircraft. Due to the fact that the plane was planted nose down on the landing strip like a hastily extinguished cigarette... The rear exit slides were particularly steep, leading to a few minor injuries from passengers landing a tad roughly on the asphalt below. Just a, just a, a little bit of road burn. Never yeah, hurt anybody. Yeah, just bouncing off the ground, you know. <laughs> Skipping you down the runway like a rock on a pond. Yeah, these were the only known injuries resulting from the incident. 
other than, you know, the mass casualty of about a thousand pair of pants. <laughs> <laughs> no one cares about that. Luckily, as this was a racetrack, members of the Winnipeg Sports cl- Car Club had plenty of fire-, fire extinguishers on hand and quickly put out the flames. Oh, for a minute I thought you were going to say they raced people to the uh, like to the hospital in in I wanted it to happen, but in my heart I knew it was too good to be true. Just drift around corners in the on the way on the way to the closest hospital. <laughs> this like Formula One race car. That's what I want. <laughs> That's all I've ever wanted. Uh, the plane received re- relatively little damage and was repaired enough to be flown out of the airfield two days later, which is particularly amazing as the initial team of Air Canada mechanics sent out in a van from the Winnipeg airport ran out of fuel en route. <laughs> Leaving them stranded in the middle of the Manitoban wilderness. <laughs> My god, our entire country's just run by elk. <laughs> Holy shit, this country is a goddamn theme park. We're not a real country. We're a joke perpetrated by the King of France. <laughs> this was a cruel bet between King George and King Louis, and we lose. <laughs> This has just been a massive acting acting gig. Everyone, everyone you've ever met who says they're Canadian, they're not. They're a hired actor with a weird speech impediment. Canadians are fake, and they don't know how much fuel to put in anything. (laughs) Oh, also, I'm not really, on hindsight, surprised that they fixed the airplane well enough to leave the runway because apparently nothing worked on the way in. I assume. They just patched the tire and they hauled ass. They just got out. Some, they just got out some quick rubber and they just they they called it a day like a lazy dad. <laughs> like these are people who are way too comfortable with like on the fly repair. Yeah, there's there's no chance that they actually fixed any of it. They're like, well, we just we patched the tire there for you, bud. None of the controls work, but you're just gonna have to eyeball her all the way back to Ottawa. You're an international airline. You are the national airline of a, well, not world-class country, developed nation. (laughs) It's the highest praise we can afford. you have the maintenance skills and standards of a divorced dad on welfare. My father has a 1969 Thunderbird in his garage that he bought really cheap when he was 14 because two people died in it. Sometimes it's set in a garage. I that wasn't a joke. Two people died making out in that car. The there was a hole in the floorboard and carbon monoxide leaked into the passenger seat. <laughs> not a funny story. That car is haunted. It's genuinely haunted. But my dad is a haunted Ford nineteen sixty nine Thunderbird that sat in a garage for thirty years. He only works on it when it's drunk. It runs about as well as an Air Canada plane in nineteen eighty six. Oh man, like I mean. They're innocent people, and that's tragic. But did they just think that it was just a really hot sesh? Apparently, yes. That's exactly what happened. Someone found them the next day. I'm feeling lightheaded. Is it the mood, or is it the monoxide? They were found half undressed in the back seat. Monoxide (laughs) to death. I don't... It's not a funny story. Two people died in my father's car. I don't... Really it's take horrifying the and I'm desensitized. My father bought it illegally when he was 14. It turns out that ghosts really tank the blue book value. 
I'm and then not. he he stole a license plate and drove it illegally for two years. The, no part of this story is funny, but I'd still get into that car before I would get into any airplane in 1986. No, there is no 83 airplane, especially not in Canada, that is... Like, there's no plane that's seas-worthy, never mind sky-worthy. What's also hilarious in all of this story, um, that, that I think uh, many people in our American audience might not realize... Bombardier is a Canadian company. Most airplane parts for many, many models of airplanes are manufactured in Canada. Absolutely. It's actually huge in our politics here. <laughs> that's like that's what we do as a nation. Bombardier you... owns us. We don't we don't keep this country afloat on maple syrup and moose meat alone. No no no. We're a modern nation that manufactures many of the parts that go into your planes. Yeah, that's, like, we made the cannon arm, because that aerospace is kind of what we do, so the fact that we're so goddamn bad at it should Terrifying. make you afraid. You, you, you should, should be afraid be at night. afraid constantly. If you are not currently sweating, if you are not currently jerking awake, covered in your own cold fluids, you're not scared enough. We're coming for you, and we're incompetent. The aircraft and automobile industries are our two largest manufacturing sectors. I mean, mostly we give people oil and and lumber, but the airplane parts are uh, they're up there. That's they it's, it's are what we do. Indeed. That's it's what we do. And yes, apparently we give all the good ones to the Americans. We keep nothing for ourselves. We're like a beleaguered mother who gives all <laughs> the best portions to her children. After an internal investigation by Air Canada. Pearson received a six-month demotion, and Quintal a two-week suspension. They didn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And an investigation by the Aviation Safety Board of Canada, uh, a far less interested party, on the other hand, praised the crew and faulted Air Canada for neglecting to clearly and specifically assign responsibility for calculating the fuel load in an abnormal situation neglecting to provide better training on the metric system to pilots and fueling personnel, and failing to keep sufficient spare parts on hand, including fuel gauges. Like, the, the entire reason why this plane flew unfixed is because they didn't have enough spare parts around to replace it. There's fuel gauges on butane lighters. The fact that there was no fuel gauge on a goddamn aircraft is unforgivable, frankly. Unforgivable! And that they tried to pass this on to the two heroic pilots who took every possible measure to ensure the safety of their crew and passengers is repulsive. <laughs> it's actually disgusting. How dare you blame good old Bob and Maurice for this? <laughs> you prevented an entire airplane full of people from ending up as a particularly chunky bit of Smucker's jam on a Gimli runway. Six-month demotion. For, like, doing a kung fu flip with a 130-ton airplane to avoid turning children into salsa, and you give him a suspension? <laughs> They're like, no, next time kill them all. <laughs> then you can have a promotion. <laughs> You're gonna get a medal. Whew. So that's the Gimli glider, everyone. <laughs> I, I mean, nobody died. Nobody died. I have kept my promise. There are several moments where I'm pr pretty sure you're thinking like, okay, well, they have to all be dead now. But no. 
<laughs> no, and he was sort of eventually redeemed in the public's eye. I don't know if he ever got his job back, but... Oh, he did. Oh, good, oh, he did. good, good. It was reversed. <laughs> Thank- good. That's, uh... They're like, hey, on second thought, thanks for not killing everyone, I guess. Oh, he kept, he kept flying for decades. He's like... I'll and just get back in an airplane. I imagine oh, yeah. he double-checked uh, the fuel after that. Oh, like, these two were dead calm the entire time. They were so okay with- they were weirdly okay. <laughs> in fact, like, and, like, they kept using the Gimli glider, too. Like, that plane they stayed got back in, in the, same the airplane for decades. The reason that they decades. say get back on the horse is because, like, it's a living thing. It will be afraid of you if you don't get back on it. It's an airplane. You can put it through a meat grinder. Oh, yeah. It don't care. <laughs> you don't have to get back in that particular airplane, but he's just like, no. Bring me my steed. They're like, he's like, don't worry about it. It'll buff out. <laughs> I bounced this goddamn plane off a runway full of children. <laughs> Can't wait to climb back in. It's kind of like how stress breeds, uh, like, breeds strong bonding impulses. Just He just imprinted on that plane like a baby duck. <laughs> Dumb aviation mistakes are far from a purely North American concern, however, which brings us to our final story. British Airways Flight 5390, an incident which lacks a cute nickname or commemorative stamp. This is actually a story which was sent to me by my sister, inspiring the topic of this episode. And she if knows you know my sister, you're already bracing yourself. <laughs> I'm 100% bracing myself because there's like a 0% chance that this story doesn't involve bodily fluids not where they should be. <laughs> yeah, you must be fully clenched. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very clenched. I'm, I'm, Kegel exercises are go. The flight was scheduled for the morning of June 10th, 1990 departing Birmingham, England for the Malaga Airport in the south of Spain. Both pilot Tim Lancaster and co-pilot Alistair Ackeson were highly experienced and takeoff was routine, aside from an hour-long delay due to weather. After initial liftoff, both pilots loosened their shoulder harnesses and Lancaster likewise his lap belt. Thirteen minutes oh. after takeoff, when the plane was at an elevation of 5,270 meters, or 17,300 feet, the windscreen of the cockpit popped off with a bang. Oh, that's not supposed to happen. The sudden decompression sucked Lancaster out of his seat and half out of the plane, where his knees caught on the flight controls, turning off the autopilot. The oh, decompression pulled the flight deck door off its hinges and slammed it into the control console, causing the plane to descend rapidly. Flight attendant Nigel Ogden had been on the flight deck at the time, checking to see if either of the pilots wanted tea. He quickly grabbed, on, grabbed onto Lancaster's waist, while the other two flight attendants, Susan Gibbons and Simon Rogers, secured the cabin and instructed the passengers to brace themselves. Ogden was able to hold Lancaster, but was unable to pull him back into the plane. Lancaster, exposed to the high, thin air, rapidly lost consciousness. As one does. As one does. <laughs> Honestly, passing out is the kindest thing that can happen to you at that point. <laughs> there is nothing you can do in this situation. Really, it is a mercy that he lost consciousness. <laughs> you don't want to be awake for any of that shit. Chief Steward John Heward secured Ogden with the shoulder strap of the captain chair's seatbelt. 
Oh, they just, they buckled him in, like a sleepy three-year-old on a road trip with their parents. Atchison attempted to make a distress call to air control, but was unable to hear the radio or communicate over the sound of the rushing 630 kilometers per hour wind. All you gotta really do is just, like, jostle your co-pilot a bit, and he'll sort of flap around like a signal. (laughs) He's basically a turn signal at this point. Heward, alongside Rogers, dis- disentangled Lancaster's legs and the remain the remains of the door from the controls, allowing Atchison to restart the auto- autopilot. Atchison nonetheless continued to descend in order to re- reach an altitude with thicker air and avoid any potential cross-traffic or mid-air collisions in what is an extremely busy aviation corridor. He eventually leveled out the plane at 3,350 meters or 11,000 feet. All of this just sounds like cartoon logic. You've got, you've got this is your a co-pilot set. dangling out the open space where your windshield used to be, flapping in the wind, hanging onto his shoelaces like he's the balloons from Up. <laughs> <laughs> you're trying to just get down to where the air's thicker, so maybe he'll just come back online. Like, what? <laughs> what? You're just you're trying to get to the thick air before you pass out, like. Yeah, everyone's blue. Bugs Bunny's wearing like a, a a saucy little a saucy little flight attendant's number. Just that 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 little frog is doing the like hello my baby dance. Like none, <laughs> none of this makes any sense. At this point, Lancaster slipped slightly in Ogden's grasp. Lancaster's new position left his body flapping in the wind, his face banging against the window, blood pouring from his head and nose. Oh his God. Eyes Wide open and unseeing. Well, that's haunting. <laughs> He's basically like one of those like wacky like waving- Like the little girl from the ring. Oh, I was going to say like one of those dancing inflatable balloon men they put outside of car dealerships. <laughs> ones sort of flail in the wind. Just whip it around in the wind. Except one that bleeds every time it whips around. <laughs> Nightmares for life. Unseeing. <laughs> Dripping Dear God. That's... Uh, at this point, the crew was convinced the captain was dead. <laughs> I'm also convinced the captain's dead, and I'm not even there watching this man's like unblinking visage smash into an airplane windshield <laughs> from the outside. However, Atchison ordered them not to let go for fear that his body might hit the engine. Oh my god. <laughs> He's just gonna turn into marinara in the engine. Yeah, you think a goose is gonna take you down? Just wait until you have a 200 pound man. <laughs> oh yeah, geese, anything you can do, a human corpse can do better. Yeah, there's nobody on the tarmac at Boeing testing testing out the engine's with a fucking middle-aged man gun. It's just this cannon that fires medical cadavers. <laughs> That's not allowed. <laughs> that just sounds illegal. I I just I would donate my body to that cause. I just <laughs> I want you to launch my corpse oh. at a hundred miles per hour into a whirling jet engine to see what happens. I finally found the patent that's gonna get me banned from the patent office for life. <laughs> the human medical cadaver cannon. 
Split the royalties with me. We'll be millionaires. I shall bring eternal glory to my alma mater. <laughs> They'll have a You're statue gonna of me. You're going to win a Wikipedia me. page one day, Janelle. They'll have a statue of me on the steps of Columbia, firing my medical <laughs> cadaver. <laughs> Just launching, <laughs> launching the corpse of an 86-year-old cancer patient into the front of the Columbia <laughs> Library. <laughs> Frozen mask of horror captured in bronze. <laughs> Infamy comes in many ways. Who's to say what success looks like? Uh, for whom does the bell toll? You're an immigrant. <laughs> Achieving the American dream with nothing but chutzpah and good old-fashioned oh. immigrant spirit. Oh, that's that's what they had in mind when they opened Ellis Island. <laughs> that's what they wanted. Oh. As Ogden began to tire, Rogers took over, strapping himself into the third pilot seat, hooking Lancaster's feet over the back of the captain's chair and holding onto him by the ankles. Atchison was at this point able to hear the instructions of air of traffic control to talk him through an emergency landing at Southampton Airport. As the plane was still heavy with fuel, Atchison asked for a runway of 2,500 meters, but 1,800 was all that Southampton could offer. Nonetheless, the landing was utterly smooth. The entire incident, from sudden decompression to landing, lasted only 22 minutes. Holy shit, can you imagine how mad you'd be if the if you go to the, you know, flight manual, there's no <laughs> contingency plan for double engine failure, but there are detailed instructions for what to do if you need to land an airplane with no windshield while holding on to your pilot by the ankles as he flops outside of the airplane like a raggedy Ann doll in the wind. <laughs> you know, the Airbus people really go for that innovative edge. They, they've thought of everything over Those at Airbus. Those people think outside the box. They, they came a long way in the past seven years. <laughs> sick minds. There's some sick minds. <laughs> Hire me, Airbus. I think I'm just what you need. <laughs> the passengers left via the normal steps, though some had to be yelled at to stop trying to get their luggage from the overhead bins. God, I hate everybody. I hate everyone. Upon landing, it was discovered that Lancaster was, in fact, very much alive. <laughs> <laughs> He's got one fucking hell of a headache. Oh, you're gonna have a concussion where your own voice is too loud. You're gonna have to wear a helmet for the rest of your goddamn life. It's amazing we can't see your brain from the outside. <laughs> oh my god. I knew there was gonna be displaced fluid in this story, I just didn't know where it would be. <laughs> Oh, your sister came through. You you know she'll comes in clutch with the gross body fluids. <laughs> She's never let me down. As Lancaster was taken away in a stretcher by paramedics, he said, quote, I want to eat. To which Ogden replied, Typical bloody pilot. <laughs> sir, you have no teeth left. Let's just... <laughs> one thing at a time, sir. Slow down, sir. We haven't even f figured out if your lungs are still above your stomach. <laughs> You've just been turned into a fucking 
Sylvester Stallone at the end of Rocky, and you're just reaching around for bangers and mash in the fucking ambulance. Yeah, you've been spending the last 22 minutes as an impromptu air sock. Calm down, my good buddy. <laughs> the man, get the man some fish and chips. We need some spotted dick stat. <laughs> <laughs> I assume they just have that as a standard part of a British Airways kit. I assume it's in the first aid kit. You just open it and it's underneath the band-aids. <laughs> Tim Lancaster suffered frostbite, fractures oh. to his wrist and arm, and a broken thumb. He returned to work five months later. I've had worse injuries than that tobogganing in Canada. This uh, guy got sucked out of an airplane and he's just like, meh. He was unusually sturdy for a <laughs> middle-aged pilot. Dirty fucking man. Apparently, apparently they would have had to like fire some pretty tough corpses into the engine to test for him. <laughs> uh, Nigel Ogden suffered a dislocated shoulder and frostbite to the face, including damage to his left eye. He likewise returned to work, but took early retirement in 2001 due to post-traumatic stress. I I assume they just let you. Yeah, you're good. You're yeah, they don't, they don't question. Oh my god, if you Google this accident, there are pictures online. We will post. <laughs> oh, it's a reconstruction, but what a horrifying reconstruction it is. Oh, there's an entire, like, reconstructed short film about this incident. We're Watch gonna post it, it if you dare. We're gonna post it on the Facebook page. It's it's something. It's in glorious Technicolor, and I hope you enjoy. He went out the plane at a different angle than you think he did. That's <laughs> all I can say. It's, it's, it's not actually, good. It's an it's an evocative image. <laughs> How the fuck do you end up quite like a quite bent like that? That okay. <laughs> yeah, you might be thinking. Like, that his stomach was over the side? No, he was bent over backwards like a gymnast. Yeah, he really... I mean, he got his hamstring stretches in that day. <laughs> you know, he was doing his yoga. The angle he would have had to flop at to hit his face on the front of the airplane is Horrifying. like... It's some It's some Japanese horror movie shit. <laughs> Police recovered the windscreen and many of the bolts that had held it in place from outside of Cholesley, Oxfordshire. A later investigation found that the windscreen had been installed improperly, 27 hours prior to the flight, where instead of checking the manual, a British Airlines engineer simply used bolts that looked the same as those that had been used before. Oh, please, God, no. He's just tightening Ikea bolts with a fucking Allen key that they give you. Oh, dear God. Yeah. He was eyeballing it. I was gonna say, well, that's the last day. Uh, that's the last day British Airlines used finger tight as the uh, <laughs> as the gold standard of airline bolts. Unfortunately, eighty four out of ninety of the bolts were slightly too small in diameter, one point six millimeters too small, or zero point zero six three inches, if you prefer. That's terrifying. The that that matters. Yeah. The last six were slightly too short, by 2.5 millimeters, or 0.1 inches. Like, in response to the incident, all British airline plane windscreens are now bolted to the plane from the inside rather than the outside, reducing the stress on the bolts. I was gonna say, I haven't heard someone argue that 0.1 inches makes a difference since my last Tinder date, but my mom listens to this podcast, so I can't make that joke. Ha. <sighs> and you know what that means. 
It's gonna be the intro. No, no, god damn, my boyfriend listens to this. This (laughs) No. Oh no, what have I done? (laughs) You should have never given me control of the editing, Janelle. I have no one to blame but myself. I know I have the free evenings, but you never should have given up that control. Uh, when I was job hunting last month, every time somebody gave me an offer, I was like, well, that's all the confirmation I need that uh, you don't Google candidates. <laughs> that's what that tells me right here. I've, I've worked in a very high profile Government of Canada office for a while now, basically since last October, and uh, they've definitely never Googled me. Maybe they the, used Bing, I'm not sure. The uh, the Canadian government, their idea of a background check is just making sure your eyes aren't too close together. <laughs> Eyeballing it. it is a real, has is has a long tradition in the Canadian government. That's due diligence for both of our employers. I also want to give a particular shout out to the title of the account written by flight attendant Nigel Ogden. Uh, namely, hello, this is your captain screaming. is that really what he wrote oh yeah yeah he didn't put the hello but yeah it's called this is your captain screaming and i fondly recommend it we might have to post it it's we might we might have found our third podcast co-host get on here (laughs) you limey bastard that's clever flight attendant anymore so but i wonder if he's if he's ever considered a career an entertainment career (laughs) ever considered being an unpaid underappreciated canadian comedian get on here come on nigel You'll fit right in. You're gonna have to change your name to something with O at the end, though. It's E-A-U. It doesn't- it, it looks different than it sounds. You need a French last name. That's the ticket for entry. That's it. That's it. You also might have to put on a few pounds. <laughs> Grab a French pastry and a French surname and we'll talk. But yes. Flight! Hope you remember this, or download it again the next time you're going on the plane. Oh, I only felt comfortable doing this episode because I'm too broke to travel, but the rest of you fuckers who have money, good luck out there. Godspeed. Godspeed. And remember, you're in more danger on the ground. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, holy shit. (laughs) Just just walk to Mexico, it'll be fine. (sighs) Get that beach body. On the one hand, you're gonna be tight when you get there. On the other hand, it's going to be winter. I was going to say, yeah, it's going to be February. But <laughs> it's, it's fine. You won't have to witness your, your captain being sucked out the windshield. Fewer nightmares in any case. Oh, wonderful. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.